Get Lit. Welcome back to Get Lit, the literary podcast where we discuss famous works of literature and the authors who wrote them. I'm your host, Steph Svars, joined here by my co-host, John Stricker. And we are very excited. It will be uh, November 2nd when all of you are hearing this, or later than that. But it officially kicks off National Native American Heritage Month. And so John and I are really excited to bring you an author that um, I am really looking forward to sharing, um, and hopefully one that lots of you don't know, so we can bring some exposure and and you get a chance to read some work uh, from an author that you haven't heard of before. I am always excited to learn about someone new, Stephanie, so I'm excited to see what we have in store this week and to celebrate such an auspicious month. Well, wonderful. And her work is definitely worth celebrating. Uh, And hopefully uh, lots more people will go out and read it and become a little bit more aware of things that they maybe didn't know before. That's the goal. I have two pieces of information before getting to my article this week. The first one is a shout out to Flora, who suggested that we add a room to our haunted house from two episodes ago. And the room she suggested was modeled after the Telltale Heart. And I think we could even find Percy Shelley's heart be the one that's under the floorboards. So... If what we're talking about doesn't sound familiar to you, go back and listen to our episode on Charlotte Dacre and Anne Radcliffe. I think it was two weeks ago. And my second piece of news, which is very important for our U.S. listeners, is that we have a midterm election coming up on Tuesday of next week. So if you haven't early voted or returned your mail-in ballot... Make sure that you go on Tuesday to your respective polling place and vote. In many states, you can even register the same day. In other states, you can't. So just make sure that you uh, look it up before you go. Ballotopedia is a great place to check on the ballot that you'll receive once you're in the polling booth. So you can think about it before you go there. And it makes voting very easy because you can sit in the comfort of your home while looking up the very important decision you are being asked to make on Tuesday. Lots of our authors advocated in their work um, for the right to vote, especially our women who were writing before they had the opportunity to do so. Well put, Stephanie. So get out there and vote. And remember that it's uh, in person on Tuesday the 8th. Great. Well, thank you for those important pieces of news and those updates. Um, I'm very excited about this haunted house idea as well, and we will continue expanding on it uh, before next year. So who knows? Maybe we'll be able to do a a full entire haunted house. Um, But thank you, Flora, for that suggestion. Um, And then, John, what is our news update? So as I've been looking through the news lately, there have been a lot of doom and gloom articles about the state of the English literature degree, but I think there is an update here that is going to rejuvenate interest in this very important degree, and we can thank Adele for that. So the article is from the Washington Post, and it is... Adele tells fans her next move. She wants to get a college degree in English literature. Nice! Yes, she will be going online with a tutor in 2025, and she'll be doing this while she is completing her Las Vegas residency. I thought that was really cool. And one other interesting thing that they profiled in this article is there was a television special where Adele told uh, actress Emma Thompson that her teacher, Miss McDonald, had inspired her to love the subject and was, quote, so bloody cool, so engaging, she really made us care. And of course, because it is television, they reunited Miss McDonald and Adele. And Adele was so happy to see the teacher that had inspired her. 
That's awesome. Um, well, thank you, Adele, for, you know, I guess raising the profile of the English degree. Uh, but I hope she has a wonderful time on her studies. I'll be very curious to know um, which she enjoys, what books she likes, and, you know, what she really likes thinking about. So hopefully she'll continue to tell us about those things and we'll be able to report them all back to all of you. I will be on the lookout. <laughs> Thank you, John. Well, I will go ahead and take over here um, as we switch on over to the profile of Ella Cara Deloria, um, our native first native author that we'll be profiling this month. Ella Cara Deloria was born on January 31st, 1889, um, in what's known as the White Swan District of the Yankton Indian Reservation, which is now on land that we call South Dakota. Wow. This makes her an Aquarius. And she was on FamousBirthdays.com, which I was excited to see, but her profile was sparser than I'd hoped. She is the 11th most popular author born on January 31st. Hmm. And the most popular author was a person I'd never heard of. Her name's Lorraine Warren, and she's a medium. So that was cool. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. But Norman Mailer and uh, Zane Gray, who wrote Western novels, kind of ironically for this week, was also <laughs> born on January 31st. I went to people who were born in 1889, and that included the likes of Charlie Chaplin, Otto Frank, Edwin Hubble, uh, and George S. Kaufman, who was a famous director and writer on Broadway. He directed Guys and Dolls and wrote a play called You Can't Take It With You. Eventually, he would win a Pulitzer Prize, I believe. Um, wow. But I thought he would be worth sticking on there and maybe a, a future Get Lit episode. Those are people from so many different portions of society. It's really cool when uh, you know you choose a year and you recognize people from just such disparate spheres that it's hard to believe they're united by the one fact that they were born in the same year. Very true. <laughs> Her name that she was given was Anpetu Washuin, uh, which means beautiful day woman. And that was to honor the blizzard that fell on her birthday. So I thought that was interesting. I like that. It's a really beautiful name. I agree. Um, her parents are Mary or Miriam Bordeaux Deloria and uh, Philip Joseph Deloria. And they have kind of a mixed background in terms of their ancestry, um, coming both from the Yangtung Dakota tribes, um, along with English, French, and German roots as well. And that's actually where the family surname comes from. Uh, Deloria is French. So her father was one of the first Sioux to be ordained an Episcopal priest. He converted to Christianity, I think, in his early 20s, and he um, renounces his claim to the chief role that he had. Um, and her mother was the daughter of Alfred Sully, who was actually a general in the U.S. Army. So you can see that there's probably a lot to unpack within the legacy of her family, and I just kind of wanted to put that out there to start. Both of her parents had relationships prior to this and had children from those marriages, um, but Ella was the first child that they had together, and uh, she also had a few siblings that were younger than her from that relationship. So she had a little sister named Susan, um, also known as Mary, and um, she had a brother named Vine Deloria Sr., who also became a priest, and then would later have a son that is going to be a feature later this month. Uh, he also became an author. That's pretty cool. Keeping the family business going strong. Right. The, the writer legacy. 
So Deloria was brought up on the Standing Rock Reservation, um, and she grew up speaking both Dakota languages, mostly with her father, and Lakota languages um, in the community that she lived in and with her friends at school. So she learns multiple dialects, um, but she also knows English and Latin. So she comes from quite the linguistic pedigree, I think, in that regard. Wow. She goes to St. Elizabeth's Church and Boarding School, and then All Saints Boarding School in Sioux Falls. And when she graduates in 1910, she gets a scholarship to attend Oberlin College in Ohio, and she heads on over there. So after three years over at Oberlin, she actually transfers to Columbia Teachers College in New York um, and graduates in 1915 with her Bachelor of Science and a teaching certificate, uh, which is awesome, I think really remarkable. And it's while she's there that she meets a very well-known anthropologist named Franz Boas. um, And he recruits her as a student to start working on some of his um, anthropology projects, which I think is really amazing that he finds someone who's interested and passionate um, and invites her along to do work with him. And what better person to ask to do this anthropology research than someone who can speak many native languages? I imagine that was a big asset for her. Yes. So she would translate text to help in his overall studies. And she also started working with Margaret Mead and Ruth Benedict, who were kind of like his assistants and also colleagues in in the work that they were doing. And um, she starts to challenge some of the assumptions that are being made about Native people at the time. So she has kind of this interesting relationship with Boaz throughout the course of her career that helps not only um, further the scholarship that's available on Native cultures, but also correct some of the misunderstandings that are being published about them. Um, and so she kind of raises, you know, his his academic level in that regard and, and challenging some of the things that he might have been putting out there initially. Uh, which I thought, again, was really remarkable that she was able to make those changes um, and and fix some of the errors that had been made about the assumptions of her culture. So in 1915, after she graduates, she heads back to the Midwest um, for a while, and she teaches at All Saints Boarding School. Um, And while she's there, she also supervises health education, which I think is incredibly important and probably very meaningful work, especially in terms of getting to know the community and the needs uh, in that moment. After doing that, uh, in 1927, 1928 or so, um, Boaz actually visits Deloria. Um, She's down in Kansas for a time, so he heads down there and asks her to come back to New York to start working on some of his projects again and and her own material. So her goals, when she specifically started to look at the Lakota language, uh, were threefold. The first one was that she was looking to edit and translate the texts of different Sioux people um, into English through these various dialects that she understood. Um, She wanted to create detailed descriptions of various religious and cultural traditions of the Sioux people. Um, And she also wanted to compile her linguistic data from her knowledge and from her experience and work into a dictionary, into a codified way. Um, Lots of native languages aren't, uh, and there are really fascinating reports about this uh, and plays written about it and books and all kinds of scholarship uh, about these languages. But most of them are just sort of taught and passed down orally, and we don't have records of them in the same way that we do English, um, which doesn't make them illegitimately 
languages, but makes them a little bit more difficult to study, uh, especially with the colonization that has wreaked havoc on the people who speak them. One of the first translations that she does is actually of the Sundance, which is an incredibly important Lakota ceremony um, in the tradition. And there was a copy that existed, but it was really long and sort of decontextualized and didn't necessarily have the proper reflection of the religious meaning. And so she actually works with an elder um, in the community to take that work and put the context in it uh, and make it a little bit more accurate than it was initially. Um, she, however, confronted some problems um, in her translation, especially while recording these religious ceremonies. Um, she is part of the Christianized Sioux tradition. Um, she wasn't necessarily privy to some of the uh, indigenous or more traditional practices that fell outside the realm of Christianity. And as a result of this, um, she gets into kind of a conflict with the people that she's working with at Columbia, um, who are telling her, you know, we need these records of these religious traditions, go out and find them. Um, and she pushes back on that and says, I don't really feel comfortable doing those things uh, because I don't have this knowledge. I grew up in a Christian household, in a Christian family. And it's not necessarily appropriate to ask elders and religious leaders to share their visions or other elements of these religious traditions. Um, so it's actually this pushback. Initially, um, they were frustrated, but came to understand that this wasn't the best way to do things. Um, this allowed her then in turn to open up the way that she was reporting and recording these histories and focused more on the structure of the societies um, and the cultural traditions of the Lakota people. Good for her for standing up for the basic human right to privacy of of practicing some of the most intimate things you can practice, like a spiritual or religious practice for a, a set of people that maybe she didn't even feel that she knew well enough to to ask these intimate questions. I, I think that that takes a lot of character, especially when she could see that there was an academic hunger and it could have furthered her position, I think that's even more a testament to her moral character to say, that's not the way that, that I'm comfortable doing this. I will not follow this line of inquiry. But look, I can comfortably and accurately follow this line of inquiry, and I think the results will be as interesting and important. And they were incredibly important. Um, to kind of add to this, I thought this was also sort of interesting. Um, Deloria and Boaz start working on the work of James Walker, who had collected a ton of information about the Lakota people, their beliefs, their rituals, and their myths. Um, Boaz has actually asked Deloria to take a look at the findings that he has published. Um, but she realizes in doing this that a lot of Walker's work doesn't separate the creative fiction from the traditional stories. So he blends and potentially perpetuates these inaccurate interpretations of this culture. Boaz was really uh, kind of upset by that and is trying to figure out ways to align answers that he found with the scholarship that already existed. And when it doesn't, again, it sort of forces him to push back and challenge his assumptions that he had about different cultures uh, that he was writing about. So again, another example of her sticking up for the people and the cultures that she is passionate about and, and has knowledge of and a deep love for. And the fact that she was able to affect change in her lifetime and the understanding of the people that she was studying and felt close to is, again, a testament to the success she found in doing things the right way. 
I agree. And it also raised his scholarship as well. Um, Let's find ways to make this more accurate. She went out there and did it and made it happen. Um, In addition, she translates uh, into English many historical and scholarly texts from Sioux writers, including um, the Lakota texts of George Bushotter. Um, She also uh, translated work from the first Sioux ethnographer uh, in 1932. That gets published. And then she also records the Santee texts from the Presbyterian missionaries, uh, which, again, I think would be sort of interesting to unpack, but she translates those as well. From 1938 to 1939, she's part of a small group of researchers that are actually commissioned to do a socioeconomic study on a Navajo reservation um, from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And um, they take a look, again, at the culture uh, that is currently existing in them. So this is less historically anthropological in that regard, but she's doing work that affects the people who are living currently. And um, it's this work on this report that gets her opportunities for further speaking engagements, and then also funding for her later work, which is really, really important. Um, Of course, we, we want to fund all of this scholarship. Um, Throughout the course, in order to kind of support these, I mentioned, of course, that she was a teacher before this, um, and she gives various demonstrations uh, along with her lectures. She also works for the Campfire Girls and the YWCA um, as the National Health Education Secretary, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, that's a very high position. Good for her. Right? She also holds positions later down the line um, at the Sioux Indian Museum in Rapid City, South Dakota, and serves as the assistant director of the W.H. Over Museum in Vermilion. It sounds like she has her hands in quite a, a lot of different cultural societies. Right. Um, And ways to reach lots of people, places that are focused on education and correcting um, likely a lot of the mistakes that were being perpetuated about her culture. Um, In 1940, she and her sister go to Pembroke, North Carolina, to do some research, which I think is really interesting, about a self-identified group called the Lumbee of Roberson County. The Lumbee, I thought, had a very interesting history. Um, Since the late 19th century, they are a mixed race people, but are considered free people of color before the Civil War. So that's an interesting legacy to unpack. Um, They get recognized as an Indian tribe by the state of North Carolina, um, which allows them to have their own schools and and that sort of thing. But they were seeking federal recognition as a Native American tribe. When she goes down there, she writes about their distinct culture, their languages, and that sort of thing. Uh, She's particularly interested in women. She conducts a lot of interviews about their uses of plants and food, medicine, animal names, that sort of thing. And she also compiles from this data, from this research and her interviews, a dictionary uh, of what might have been their original language before English was later adopted. So again, incredibly important work, not only for her own tribe and her own people, um, but from people around the United States. Uh, A little bit later in the 1940s, uh, 1948, she completes a novel called Water Lily. So a lot of her writing up to this point has mostly been um, anthropological. It's been nonfiction. Uh, But she takes a stab at writing a fiction work. And this one, like I mentioned, is called Water Lily. Unfortunately, it isn't published until 1988. So almost 40 years after um, not only its original completion, but also her death. Wow, worth the wait. 
Yeah. So it is a story that captures uh, the experiences of three generations of women before the reservation period. Um, And it might be one of the only written sources that explores the religious life of Lakota women. So it's incredibly important. Again, although it is fictionalized, um, it does capture very accurately the experiences of the Lakota women, uh, particularly through this religious lens. Uh, so also in the 40s, I thought this was pretty interesting. Uh, she assembles a pageant with, for, and about the Robeson County Indians um, that takes a look at their origin story, which I think is cool. So she does, you know, some work that I think is paratheatrical, um, but also helps to unify a culture uh, and expand it and hopefully give access to the people uh, who are struggling to get it out into the broader public, uh, but also maybe reclaim some of it for themselves. So she does some pretty important work with that. And who does not love a good pageant, right? <laughs> right. And is how, how accessible is that compared to some of the other anthropological work that she's been doing? Uh, this is a way for hopefully the people who she is uh, explaining to the larger society to present themselves with the help of her uh, curations. So I, I think that it's really cool to engage the community uh, and allow them to speak through the work or the pageant. True. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Um, There's something pretty inaccessible about a full anthropological data report, right? They're not uh, popular literature for some reason. Yeah, you know, I can't remember the last time I I read an anthropological report, Stephanie. (laughs) Um, There's one in our town. So I've read that account. (laughs) There is! (laughs) (laughs) Anyway... So throughout the 1960s, she works at the University of South Dakota, and her work there leads to the LSE Deloria Project, which is uh, tasked with preserving the culture of the Dakota people. Um, And it's still around today. So her legacy continues to live on in the preservation work that she's doing. And um, she's continuing to work on a Lakota dictionary, a language dictionary, um, when she suffers a series of strokes starting in February, um, eventually leading to her death on February 12th of 1971. Um, she's buried in the St. Philip's Episcopal Cemetery, which is near Lake Andes on the Yangtung Reservation in South Dakota. Wow. Um, And her legacy, of course, is one that I think is incredibly worth noting. I did not know very much about her at all. And I'm really, really looking forward. I would love to get a copy um, of Water Lily and take a look at some of her work because I think it's incredibly important. Um, The other message that I would like to kind of put out here as we conclude this episode um, is that a lot of the research that I am doing and have done is framed from a white lenser perspective. Historically speaking, that has been true. And so a lot of the names that wind up getting used, for example, Sioux, don't necessarily accurately represent the current um, desires of the tribes that are uh, existing on the territories that we also call um, by English or American names. So I'm hoping that by putting this out there, folks are more inclined to do some research for themselves about the way that tribes actually want to be described, named, um, and we'll do our best to make sure that that research is reflected. So uh, as we go back, historically speaking, and we look at some of these authors that are a little bit older on the timeline, 
um, that people make those corrections and they do uh, elevate and raise the scholarship and the names of the people that we are talking about. So um, if you have corrections or if you have more accurate information, please don't hesitate to reach out to us and let us know. Uh, as we've mentioned, this is an ongoing research project and this is something that we um, are happy to correct uh, as we learn more ourselves. And I think that's a really important disclaimer, uh, kind of in general. I know we talk about this podcast as being an introduction, uh, but I don't think it ever hurts to reiterate it again, that this is hopefully a jumping off point for people rather than the definitive end all. Well said, Stephanie. And I know the work today has helped me on a path to better understanding the complex and fascinating history of Native people in America. And I think it's really interesting, and I'm very excited to learn about more authors this month, because I think we have a tendency to see Native people as having lived in the past, when that is not the case at all, that they live today. And as a society, we need to understand this fascinating history. And I think this is a really exciting opportunity for a peek, at least through the lens of literature, into this culture that I admittedly don't know nearly enough about. Great. Well, then this month, hopefully, will be very good for that. Um, But listeners, thank you so much for helping us celebrate uh, the legacy of Ella Cara Deloria. We have many more authors to feature this month that I'm excited about. Um, But we appreciate you tuning in and listening. So until we see and hear from you next, thank you so much for your support of this podcast. And thank you, as always, for keeping it lit. Yeah.